Let's try that again. My name is Ryan Walkus. Uh, I am not a pastor here. I am a director of a ministry here in Taiwan called the Bridge Street House of Prayer, a guy that they let preach here once in a while. I love being at this church. I love that this is a church that uh, loves the Word of God. If you're new here and you're trying to figure out, hey, what kind of church is this? Uh, we're the kind of church that does a series uh, from the book of Revelation during Advent and uh, spends time in Leviticus during Lent. So that's fun. Uh, uh, but I love that this is a church that, 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 that upholds and puts a high value on the Word of God, and we find Jesus in the pages of Scripture. And I love that. I love being a part of a church that uh, is not ashamed of the gospel. And uh, I've had the the honor of studying with Rod and, and uh, some other pastors and guys from this church for a number of years here, and I love how Rod and the team has led us in that and uh, in, our, in our value of the Word of God. And uh, so we're in the book of Leviticus right now, Leviticus 23. I have no idea what page that would be on your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible... Uh, you can raise your hand so everybody can see who didn't bring their Bible to church. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I don't bring my Bible to church either. Uh, but there's, there's Bibles around. If you need them, feel free to get up and grab them or pass them out or whatever. Uh, we're in this series on Jewish feasts. And as Rod has, as we lead up to Good Friday and, and celebrate the death and resurrection of our Savior Jesus, we're, we're spending this, this season of preparation and anticipation looking at uh, these Jewish feasts. Why would we do that? Well, as Rod has, uh, has been pointing out in the last several weeks, as you begin to look at these feasts that God institutes, got a little weird thing going on with my mic here. Um, as, as we look at these feasts that God institutes for Israel, what these feasts did for Israel and do for us is they remember, God establishes these feasts and festivals as a way to remember the journey of Israel and it anticipates Christ. So these feasts, when we begin to unpack them, it really tells the story of who God is, what God did with Israel, and in God's infinite wisdom, it anticipates and is fulfilled in Christ. And so by way of review, just for a few moments to kind of bring us up to what we're going to look at today, the Feast of Weeks, who remembers the first feast that we looked at three weeks ago? What was the first feast that we looked at? Sabbath? Okay, that was kind of the introductory. What was the first festival? Passover. Passover is this uh, this feast that, that that Israel is... Uh, It celebrates to remember this time when they were in Egypt and God hears their cry and he tells them to take a lamb into their home for four days. And then at the end of four days, they're to slaughter that lamb, put the, the blood of that lamb on their doorpost, and then an angel of death comes and passes through the the land and it passes over Israel. So any family that has the blood of the lamb on its doorpost, this angel of death passes over, which is why they call it Passover, and then it goes into the land of Egypt, 
and kills the firstborn of all the families of Egypt. This celebrates and remembers the salvation that God brings to Israel that day. Now, if you uh, look forward to Christ, Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, died on Passover. So then we go, what is the second feast that we looked at? What was it? Unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is this feast that God institutes right after Passover, and it remembers the, the, the exodus out of Egypt, specifically the, the, the passing through of the Red Sea. And it's this festival where God tells Israel for, for a whole week, you're to get the yeast out of your house, get the leaven out of your house. And we know in Scripture that, that many times, not always, but many times, that yeast represents sin. And so it's this time where God says, now that I've saved you and rescued you, now get the, get the yeast, get the sin out of your life. It, it's a, it's a, a celebration and a remembrance of purification as Israel passes through the Red Sea. And then we come to the third festival. And what's the third festival? First fruits. First fruits is this festival that, again, remembers this journey in, out, out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into this new land where they're now uh, uh, into a new journey. It celebrates new life for Israel, which is interesting when you look at Jesus. Jesus died on Passover. Jesus passed through the grave during unleavened bread, and then Jesus rose from the grave on first fruits, this festival that Israel uh, was told to celebrate to remember the new life that God had given them. There's also this, uh, this theological, just this really significant theological progression that I just highlighted of salvation that leads into purification, which then brings about new life. I've been very compelled by this progression as we've been studying these festivals over the last uh, three weeks. Now when we come to the Feast of Weeks, this feast you'll find as we unpack this today, fits right into this trajectory where it's a, a feast that remembers a specific event in Jewish, Jewish history, but it's also fulfilled in Christ. And I've been so compelled over the past month or two as I've been studying this passage how significant this is in Jewish history and throughout Scripture and how significant it is in our life today. And I hope by God's grace I can help articulate that for us a little bit today. So I want to take some time and read from Leviticus 23. And then I'm going to hopefully help us unpack what does this have to do with Israel's history and what does that have to do with us today. We like to, here at Crossroads, stand for the reading of God's word if you are able. We do this just simply out of respect for God and his word. Leviticus 23, starting in verse 15, says, From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. He's talking about first fruits there. He's talking about the Sabbath of first fruits. So from day after the first fruits, count off seven Full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. 
from wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour, baked with yeast, as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Present with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect, one young bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord, together with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old, for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering, together with the bread of first fruits. They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. On that same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. And when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your fields or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Go ahead and have a seat. So as we open this text and we look at this, a question comes to my mind, and that question is, what is it in, if these, are, if these correlate to Israel's journey, what does this correlate in Israel's journey, specifically their exodus out of Egypt? Well, it says here, uh, to count off 50 days after first fruits, after this time when God brought you through the Red Sea. So we've got to think, what happened 50 days after Israel came out of Egypt? Well, when you turn back to Exodus, and you come to Exodus 19, in Exodus 12 is Passover, Exodus 14 is where Israel journeys through the Red Sea, and then you come to Exodus 19, and it says, in the third month after Israel left Egypt. When you do the math there, this is about 50 days after first fruits. So, what happens here in this story? Well, if you follow this story in Exodus 19, you see that this is when Israel comes to Mount Sinai. What happens at Mount Sinai? This is an event in Jewish history that I don't think you can overestimate the significance of. See, it's at Mount Sinai, when they come and journey to Mount Sinai, that God tells Moses, he says, I want you to purify the people for three days. Because in three days, I want you to gather at the foot of Mount Sinai, and I am going to come down, and I'm going to speak to Israel. I'm going to appear to Israel. And so Moses purifies the people for three days, and then on the third day, they gather at the foot of the mountain, and the text in Exodus 19 says that God descends on the mountain in fire and smoke and a loud rumbling noise, like a trumpet. And it says that the trumpet blast gets louder and louder, and the people are terrified. And there's a couple of very significant things about this event that mark Israel in their journey. See, it's at this time from Mount Sinai that God gives Israel the law. Up to this point, they don't have the law. And it's from Mount Sinai that he gives them the law. Now, what is the law? 
And we've heard Rod speak about this many times. The law for Jewish people, we think about the law as rules and guidelines, the do's and don'ts. And in fact, there's a lot of that in there. But more importantly, to the Jewish community at that time, the law was thought of as a a wedding contract, a marriage covenant. To the Jewish people, this is the point at which God came and married Israel, made them his own. God also at this point gives Israel the instructions for the tabernacle. And what's significant about the tabernacle? Well, from Mount Sinai, when Israel goes out into the nations, they carry the very presence of God with them in the tabernacle. So, from this point, God marks Israel as a people that are married to him and carry the very presence of God in their midst. Now there's another piece that happens here in Exodus 19 before God even descends on the mountain and fire and smoke and this loud noise. God gives Israel their identity. In in Exodus 19 verse 5, God says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So from the, at this moment in Exodus 19, God marks Israel as a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests that are to go out carrying the very presence of God with them and priest to the nations. Now, what does that mean to be priests to the nations? Well, what was a priest? A priest was somebody that represented God to the people and also represented people to the God. It was an intercessor. A priest was one that would intercede on behalf of the people and represent God to the people. This was meant to be Israel's identity from, and this was their purpose. See, when God rescued Israel from Egypt and rescued them and saved them, when he brought them salvation, their salvation was not meant to be an end unto itself. But Israel was meant to go out into the nations and represent God to the nations. That was Israel's purpose. Now, how were they supposed to do that? Did the last verse of our text today strike anybody as a little bit out of place? In the midst of these Jewish festivals, and it's very interesting uh, what you'll find as we go on in this, um, in this, this series that we're in, is that the Feast of Weeks ends the end of the, it marks the end of the spring festivals. There's two sets of festivals. There's the spring festivals, and then there's the fall festivals. The Feast of Weeks is the end of the spring festivals, and the culmination of God's instruction for the spring festivals ends with him giving instructions about farming. Did that strike anybody as a little bit out of place? Why in the world would God end these instructions with farming? Well, when you look at what God says there, he says, 
uh, I'm going to bless you. And when you go into the land, I'm going to bless the land. And here's what I want you to do. When I bless the land and you reap its harvest, now don't, don't glean all of that harvest for yourself. Instead, leave some of the edges. And it says later on in the text, don't go over it twice, but leave some of those gleanings and leave them for whom? For the poor and the alien. As if God is saying, this is how you are to represent me to the nations. This is how you are to priest to the nations, by caring for the poor and the alien. That when you go in and I bless you, I want you now to extend that blessing to those that come into your midst, the poor and the alien. In fact, this goes back all the way to the covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham out and he says, I'm going to bless you. And through that blessing, I'm going to bless all of the nations. In fact, this goes all the way back to God's uh, intention for Adam. When you look at Adam in Genesis 1 and 2, God created Adam to be a priest, to represent God himself in the world. This is what Israel was meant to be. This is why God rescued them out of Egypt, because he loved them and because he wanted them to display his love to the nations around them. Does that make sense? Now, when you follow Israel's journey, what you find is that Israel falls very far short of this calling and very far short of this identity. In fact... When you follow the journey of Israel, after Moses comes this uh, man named uh, Joshua, and Joshua leads Israel into the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the desert. Uh, And after Joshua dies, we see that things spiral downward very quickly in Israel's journey. Rather than going into the nations and being a, a holy nation, meaning set apart, different than, distinct from the nations around them, rather than being distinct and wholly set apart and representing God to the nations. Instead, Israel very quickly assimilates with the nations. They start taking on pagan practices. They fall into the comfort and the safety that the nations uh, promise them around them. And instead of priesting to the nations, Instead, God has to use the nations to punish Israel. Rather than representing God to the nations, God uses those very nations to punish Israel, to bring them to repentance, to bring them back to his heart. And we get into the time of the judges. And God brings these judges after a time of rebellion and wickedness. He'll bring a judge to call Israel back into repentance. And it says in the book of Judges that the rebellion and the godlessness is so great, it says that in that time, there was no king among them, and every man did as he saw fit. Rather than living by the word of God that he had given them, every man just did as he thought was the right thing to do. And it's in this time where every man did what he found fit to do, that we get this beautiful little story of a woman named Ruth. 
Now, this is a fascinating little story, and if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the story, go home and read it this afternoon. It's four short chapters uh, toward the beginning of your Bible. But in this story, there's a woman named Naomi. Naomi is a, is a Jewish woman, and her and her husband and her sons go into the land of the Moabites, a foreign country, uh, and her sons marry Moabite women, foreign women, uh, and then Naomi's husband and her sons die, leaving her and her daughters without any provision, leaving them poor. And Naomi and her daughter Ruth decide to go back to the land of Israel. So in this story, you've got a poor foreigner named Ruth, who Naomi says, Ruth, why don't you go find a field to glean so that you can provide for us? And, and Ruth finds herself in the field of this godly man named Boaz, who in the midst of wickedness, in the midst of a time of rebellion, is a man who decides to uphold the word of God, a man who is guided by the word of God, who decides to leave the corners of his fields and to leave the gleanings of his fields for the poor and the foreigner. It's very uh, compelling. Some scholars will even say that Boaz, it's likely that Boaz was celebrating the Feast of Weeks when we read the book of Ruth. And so Ruth finds herself as a poor foreigner reaping the gleanings, uh, harvesting the gleanings of a godly man named Boaz. And I find it very compelling and without coincidence that our Messiah, Jesus, comes from the line of Ruth and Boaz. I don't think it is a coincidence that God chooses to use this man, Boaz, who decides to care for the poor and the alien to bring about Jesus. Now fast forward to Jesus' day. In Luke chapter 4, as we heard uh, from Trevor in New City Kids today, Jesus comes onto the scene in Luke chapter 4, and he introduces his ministry. And we need to get a hold of these words, because it's as if Jesus is saying, you want to know what I'm about? This is what I'm going to be all about. This is what my kingdom is going to be all about. And he opens up the scroll to Isaiah 61 and says, here's what I'm all about. I've been anointed by the Spirit of God, to proclaim good news to the poor. Freedom to the captives. Liberty to those that are oppressed. This is what I'm all about. And if you want to be a part of my kingdom, this is what you're going to be all about. You're going to be all about bringing justice and freedom and liberty to the poor and the oppressed and the alien. And we, I know we like to spiritualize poverty because in Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so we like to run that to spirituality and what Jesus is talking about is spiritual poverty. And indeed, there is definitely some substance to that. In Luke's gospel, Jesus leaves out poor in spirit and he just says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. And, and the problem when we over-spiritualize poverty is the text simply does not allow it. The text simply does not allow us to merely spiritualize poverty. When the text talks about the poor and the alien, it means the poor and the alien. That's what it means. 
fast forward to Jesus, uh, the end of Jesus' time here on earth. And in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus' death and his resurrection, he says to his disciples, he says, hey guys, I want you to, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem for a little while. This is 40 days. The text tells us in Acts 1 that Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection, after first fruits, uh, instructing his disciples and reminding them. And then right before he's about to ascend into heaven, he says, hey guys, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem because in just a few days, I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that I've been telling you about, the gift from the Father. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to empower you. He's going to give you power. Power for what? To witness. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and he's going to give you power to witness, to testify, to priest. And you're going to be priests to the nations. You're going to be priests in Judah, in Jerusalem, and Judah, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Just a few days after Jesus ascends, 10 days to be exact, the disciples are all together in one place, it says. Most likely at the temple at that point. Because what's 10 days after that? The Feast of Weeks. Why are there Jews, it says in Acts chapter 2, from all nations gathered in Jerusalem. They're there for the Feast of Weeks, 50 days after first fruits. We read Pentecost. It says in, in uh, Acts chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, we read that and think that Luke, that this is the first time Pentecost happened. In fact, Pentecost means 50, 50 days. They've been celebrating Pentecost for at least 1,000 years before this. What is Pentecost? It's the Feast of Weeks. It's when Jews gathered from all over the world into Jerusalem to remember in Israel's history this time when God called them to the mountain and then descended on that mountain in fire and smoke and a loud sound and then established his presence in their midst and then marked them as a nation of priests. And gave them this command to care for the poor and the alien. Now on this day, 2,000 years ago, the disciples are once again gathered for the day of Pentecost. But this day of Pentecost is not like the other days of Pentecost. Because on this day, God again comes down, reminiscent of what he did at Mount Sinai. There's a loud noise, it says, the sound of a loud wind, a loud breath, the ruach of God comes down and it says God comes down in fire, reminiscent of what he did at Mount Sinai. But instead of going into the box, into the Holy of Holies, this fire goes into the disciples and the church is born. And now the church is empowered to go out and preach good news for the poor. And it is said it's, it's fascinating when you look at the, the progression of Acts chapter 2, this day of Pentecost, the, the very end of that narrative in Acts chapter 2, it describes the church at that moment, and it says that they gather together daily, they gather together for uh, 
the teaching of the apostles, for prayer, for fellowship. But then it has this very compelling description of how they interacted. And it says that they sold possessions as God led. They gave to each other and nobody had anything in need. There was no need among them. Reminiscent of the Feast of Weeks. They're fulfilling the Feast of Weeks here. They're caring for the poor and the alien. And it says that God added to their number daily. As they took care of the poor and the alien, as they boldly proclaimed the word of God, God added to their number daily. And it's said that this is a mark of the early church. There are several church fathers that will say that the Roman Empire, they didn't know what to do with this. In a time when when success, when wealth, when achievement, when individualism was so highly valued, the Roman Empire didn't know what to do with this group of Christians that were welcoming in the poor and the oppressed, that were sharing their possessions, that were taking care of each other. It's said that the the Romans would say, look at how they loved each other. Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, would say, before Jesus, we gave ourselves to the accumulation of wealth and success. We didn't associate with people from other nations and other communities. We actually hated them. But after we met Jesus, it was so natural for us to share our possessions, to welcome people in, to care for the poor and the alien. It was a natural outflow of the working of the Holy Spirit amongst them. There was a plague in the third century that started ravaging the Roman Empire, and it was said that the pagans would take their relatives before they were even dead, and they would throw them out in the streets to die in order to save themselves from that plague. And it was said that the church would rush in and take those sick into their own homes, even at their own peril, even at the risk of catching that plague themselves. This was a mark of the early church, was how they cared for the poor and the alien. I like to compare that with the church today. And I, 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 for those of you that know me, I hope you know I love the church. The church is God's plan A for this world, and there is no plan B. But I look at some of the church today, and it, it concerns me. It concerns me when I, I see many in the church that are afraid to open their mouths. We don't want to offend people with the gospel, so we don't open our mouths. We, want, we just want to keep quiet because we don't want to offend people with the gospel. And how many people today are just accumulating for themselves more and more wealth and, and people retreating into building for themselves these 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 safe, comfortable settings to kind of keep that big, bad world out. Tim Keller, in his beautiful uh, little book called Generous Justice, says this. He says, our attitude toward the poor reveals what we believe about God. Our attitude toward the poor shows what we believe about God and the gospel. See, caring for the poor and the alien It is not just a social option. It is not just a social obligation that we have. 
Friends, I think that caring for the poor and the alien gets at the very heart of the gospel. Because without Christ, you and I are nothing but poor aliens. Without Christ, we are like what Jesus descri- what, what God describes Israel in, in Exodus 16. He says, when I, when I found you, it's Ezekiel 16, I apologize. It says, when I found you, you, you were like a baby wallowing in your own blood, tossed to the side of the road, destined to die. Nobody cared about you. Nobody, nobody cared for you. But I came and I rescued you and I welcomed you in and I cleansed you and I nurtured you and I married you. God says to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, reminding them of their identity. He says, I didn't choose you because you were the best and the greatest. God, Jesus didn't choose me because I proved myself worthy to him. No, God says, no, I chose you. When I chose you, you were actually the least. You, you were poor. You were a foreigner. And it's in that place that I met you and I loved you and I welcomed you in. See, caring for the poor and the alien gets at the very heart of the gospel. Gets at the very heart of what Jesus did for you and I. And when we care for the poor and the alien in our midst, we show the world a very tangible expression of the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, when we care for the poor and the alien, we show this world what God is like. That's why some of the stuff that we do here at Crossroads is so valuable to our neighborhood. That's why the work that we do at Stocking is so valuable and vital to our neighborhood. It's why the work that this church does with the refugee movement is so vital because we're showing the world what our God is like. When we go out into Stocking and we do a lot of work at our ministry at Westwood, Westwood Middle School, Right now, 100% free or reduced lunches. That means 100% of the families at Westwood Middle School, which is one of the two public middle schools where most of uh, families in the West Side send their kids, uh, means that 100% of the students come from families in some level of poverty. 16 different languages spoke at Union High School, our local high school here in the West Side. When we step into these places as a church, we show our neighborhood what God is like. And we give them a tangible expression of the kingdom of heaven. I like to think, I'm a very practical kind of guy, and I like to think, how does the church of Grand Rapids as a whole step into this kind of movement? What would it look like if there was a genuine move of the Holy Spirit that would move the church of Grand Rapids out into the poor and the oppressed in a city, the city of churches, where the gap between the rich and the poor is, in, is growing at a very rapid rate, where the poor are increasingly feeling marginalized and oppressed, where there is unspeakable systemic oppression against the poor? How does the church of Grand Rapids step into this? I'll tell you a story. It's a young woman, single mom, living in an apartment 
her rent was $550 a month, which she could afford. She had a, a, a minimum wage job, working hard to provide for her and her daughter, and she, she was making ends meet. One day her landlord comes to her and says, hey, I just want to let you know I sold the, the, the house, and your new landlord will be communicating with you very soon. And sure enough, in a couple of days, the new landlord gets a hold of this uh, young mom and says, uh, hey, got great news. I'm your, your, your landlord. We're going to do some renovations on the property, uh, bring it up a little bit, and I'd love for you to stay here. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to fill out this $30 application fee, uh, and your new rent will be $950. Now, obviously, this mom can't afford $950 a month, so she's got to move out of this house uh, where she'd been caring for her daughter, and she goes and starts um, staying in motels, couch surfing, but then she eventually loses her job uh, and now can't afford uh, motels or uh, pay people to sleep on their couch. So she finds herself in emergency sh- uh, family shelter where she now raises her daughter. This, I wish I could tell you um, that this is a, an unusual story, but this is a true story. This is a recent story of a very real young mom uh, who now lives at uh, emergency shelter that's provided by ICCF. This is a young mom from the west side. And again, I wish I could tell you that this is an unusual story, but these are stories that we hear every single month. Families, hardworking families that are getting priced out of their homes and are forced to live in emergency shelter or on the streets. On difficult months, these are stories that we hear every single week here in the West Side. How does the church step into this? Why in the world am I talking about housing when we're preaching on the Feast of Weeks? I'd say for the same reason that God talks about farming in Scripture. Because what he's doing is, I find it compelling that that God does not put a formula to this. He doesn't give a percentage of the amount that you're supposed to leave, but rather what God is doing is he's establishing identity and rhythms for Israel to say, this is the kind of people that I want you to be. So I wonder, what would it look like in Grand Rapids if there was a coalition of godly landlords and others that would say, you know what? We're going to address this housing issue. We see this as an issue of justice. And as people of God, we are called to be people of justice. And so we're going to, we're going to tackle this housing issue. Imagine with me if there was a, a coalition of landlords and others that would say, you know what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to prayerfully consider how many of our properties we would allow to be uh, rented at an affordable rate for families in need. What would that look like? I don't know. There is no such coalition. But I would strongly suggest that if, we, if every godly landlord in Grand Rapids would say, you know what, I'm going to prayerfully consider how many of my properties I will allow to be rented for affordable prices, I strongly suggest that we would at least make a major dent in the housing crisis right now, if not completely solve it. Let me tell you what else would happen because housing is a national crisis right now. 
Here's what else would have happened. It would get national attention. Grand Rapids would get national attention as people would say, how are you guys addressing this housing crisis? And here's what would happen. It would give us a national platform to testify about the risen Christ. It would give us a national platform to tell the world what our God is like. Pentecost would happen. What if Pentecost happened every single day in our midst? As a people of God who have been filled with his Holy Spirit, who now carry the presence of God with us wherever we go. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. The same God that descended on Mount Sinai in Acts 19, the same God whose spirit descended on the temple in Acts chapter 2, that same spirit dwells within you and I. And that spirit has empowered us to be witnesses And part of being witnesses is to be people of justice. And what would it look like for the church of Grand Rapids to be people of justice in this city? And that would open up such a massive door for us to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Friends, that's the kind of kingdom I want to be a part of. And in this time of increasing uncertainty, of, of where, where people are increasingly afraid of the alien, in this time where there's increasing oppression and difficulty, this is the time for the church to shine. Now is not the time for the church to shrink back in fear. Now is not the time for the church to shrink back in self-preservation. Now is the time for the church to take a bold step into the midst of darkness and difficulty, to take a bold step into areas of injustice and tell the world, let me show you what our God is like. Because our God is a God who welcomes in the poor and the foreigner. Because one time I was poor and I was a foreigner and God welcomed me in and he'll do it to you. Man, that's my hope and my longing for this city. And that's my hope and my longing for this church. And again, we have done it so well uh, in, in this neighborhood. And my prayer is that we would not stop, that we would not shrink back, but we would continue to step into difficult, intentious areas. And that we would continue to be a people that would let our light shine to show this world what our God is like. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for your Holy Spirit for filling us, for descending on that mountain 2,000 years ago and filling us with your Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, that we would increasingly be people of justice and mercy. God, that we would be increasingly be people that would step out into areas of difficulty and injustice and wickedness and that we would be people filled with your word, your breath, your ruach. And God, that there would be Pentecost, God, that there would be Pentecost in this city. That in this city, God, there would be daily numbers, people that are added to our numbers. Daily, that there would be a bold expression of your kingdom. 
and a bold testimony of your resurrection. God, may we be, would you give us the grace to be those kind of people? I pray those in this room uh, that are being stirred, I pray for courage for them to step into difficult areas. And I pray for those in this room that are stepping out into areas of justice every day. I pray for strength and encouragement that we might not grow weary in well-doing. Thank you, God, for calling us to this, for marking us as a kingdom of priests. God, give us the grace to do this well. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, We don't have any song to end us with, so crossroads as you go out. May God bless you and daily fill you with his spirit so that you may go out and care for the lost and the least among us. God bless you guys.